0: This is Mark 15, starting at verse 15 through 32. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole community of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him and they began to call out to him, "'Hail, King of the Jews!' Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him, and when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, and he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews, they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God, indeed. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here with you. Now, we are approaching Easter, and as a church, we are slowing down, and we are really walking with Jesus towards the cross. And I find it so significant when you, when you look at the real estate of, of the gospels, so the actual words on the page. I mean, Mark has 16 chapters. Um, The last week of Jesus's life before he's crucified starts in chapter 11. So 10 of those chapters are devoted to 32, 33 years of Jesus's life. And six of those chapters are devoted to one week. Um, And so it's fitting for us to slow down here. It's fitting for us to slow down and pay attention to Jesus and the pain he suffered. Um, And in some ways, what we're doing is we're paying attention to Jesus, not just God, but Jesus the man. Jesus, the man who suffered real pain. Now, Mark has a unique perspective on the moments leading up to Jesus's death. Where Luke talks about the man crucified beside Jesus, defending him, saying, this man has done nothing wrong, and asking Jesus to remember him, Mark shows how both men crucified with Jesus insulted him. Where John talks about Jesus's community who are present around him, at the cross in mourning, think of that exchange between Jesus and John, or the beloved disciple and and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mark shows Jesus utterly alone, even abandoned by this community. Other gospel accounts include many more words that Jesus spoke as he was heading towards the crucifixion. The last three things Jesus says in the Gospel of Mark are these: He predicts Jesus's or Peter's denial. Uh, Before the cock crows, he says. He simply says to his accusers, so you have said. And then with his last breath, he calls out, why, God, have you forsaken me? Those are the last three things Jesus says in the Gospel of Mark. And there's such a unique perspective, I think, that comes from that. Uh, The scene that Mark paints is darker, it's lonelier. There's a deeper picture of Jesus's forsakenness than we see in the other Gospels. Mark, Mark, doesn't include a picture of redemption uh, at the cross. He doesn't include a picture of community. He doesn't include Jesus' final words that we might find so comforting, like, Father, forgive them. They know not what they are doing. And so, as I've been slowing down and rereading Mark and noticing these things, I, I wonder why would Mark do this? Why would God be communicating? What would God be communicating to us through this perspective, this dark, lonely, picture of deep forsakenness. Jesus's crucifixion, depicted in this way, helps us to see how everyone, in their own way, participated in the social humiliation that Jesus suffered, which is the, the portion that we're focusing on today. Jesus mocked that social humiliation. The four groups in the bounds of this passage that constitute everyone, as I say everyone, they include the Romans, they include the Jewish religious leaders. And in that, I'm going to include those passing by on the way that knew Jesus is teaching, the criminals crucified with Jesus and his silent followers. We're going to be jumping around uh, this text as I work through these four groups, but we're going to look at Jesus mocked from the vantage point of the Roman soldiers, the Jewish leaders, those crucified with him and his followers. So let's start with the Roman soldiers who let us not forget, are acting on orders, right? Our passage begins with Pilate's action. Pilate, the governor of Judea, who presided over the trial of Jesus and ultimately ordered his crucifixion. Our text tells us why in verse 15, wanting to satisfy the crowd, right? And a few verses earlier in verse 10, right? Knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. Or self-interest other, other passage or other versions of the Bible will say he understood that these leaders they wanted to leverage the power of Rome to manage their own little issue that they found in Jesus and we, we, we learned that the chief priests were the ones that were working the crowd that day right the, verse 11 but the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead so I mean, let's take the crowd out of the situation. We, We see that's an extraneous detail here. By ordering Jesus's death, Pilate was wanting to satisfy the chief priests. The text continues in verse 15. Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. It was Pilate's orders to have Jesus flogged. It was Pilate's orders to have Jesus crucified. These punishments were designed to humiliate a person and to preclude a person from an honorable legacy. Mocking just made a sport of it. In the case of Rome, I want to invite you to consider that that Jesus is being mocked by those who are in authority, right? He's being mocked about his claims of kingship by, by those who have power, essentially, those who would also claim to be kings. Pilate asked the crowd, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? I mean, this isn't a question without prejudice. It's a mockery. It's sarcasm. This is the sort of question that you, you don't hear in a fair and measured trial. This is a mockery of justice. Then the, there's the soldiers who are the main culprits in the mockery in this passage. I mean, coincidentally, I think they are also the people that have the least at stake in the matter. Some of them have heard about Jesus. Maybe some of them have opinions on his teaching. But really, they're soldiers following orders. They are making a public de- demonstration worthy of an insurrectionist. He's verbally assaulted. Jesus was spit on. Uh, his, head was, his head and his face were struck. As a public joke, he was dressed in kingly attire and soldiers made a joke of prostrating before him. His clothes were stripped off and later the winnings of, of a game. To them, it's all sport, putting people in their place, making them feel small, Maybe, maybe this is what they say. This is what happens to you when you challenge Rome, the most powerful empire ever. This is what happens to you when the gavel of justice comes down. Are you thinking of making yourself something uh, by standing up to Rome? Just look at this fool. we've made an example out of. But the irony here is that Mark says that Pilate wasn't even concerned about insurrection. He wasn't concerned about Roman security. The irony here is that Pilate is asking the crowd, why? What crime has he committed? And he doesn't get an answer, but he turns him over anyway. There was no crime worthy of this degree of punishment. And Pilate knew that. The judge was acting as a favor to the DA, as we might say in, in our in our vernacular. He was perverting the law, abusing power. He was leveraging the strong hand of humiliation and shame, knowing full well that a system can bend in this way without legitimate charges. To Rome, mockery was just a sport, a game played alongside his most crushing, humiliating, torturous death sentence, and is issued as a favor to the chief priests. Jesus' death was ordered on the basis of the king of the Jews, if you could call that a crime. So I want you to hold that in view as we move on to the next group, the religious leaders and the passers-by who knew of Jesus' teaching. We've already said that by ordering Jesus' death, Pilate was acting as a favor to the chief priests. They're the ones with the dog in the hunks. In verses 29 to 32, here's what we read. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him, saying among themselves, he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let the Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. The mockery centers on Jesus's claims, who Jesus said he was, what he said he was going to do. I mean, in Mark, we hear this claim at the beginning of Jesus's trial in, in chapter 14. We heard him say, I will destroy the temple made with human hands, and I will rebuild it in three days, not made with hands. Jesus actually did say this. Um, I want you to consider something. It is not an unreasonable leap to imagine the average passerby feeling let down by Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus says that he can destroy and erect a temple. He, he professed to have the power, superhuman power to do that. I mean, an ancient proverb said, physician, heal thyself. And I, I don't think it's outside of the, the imagination of a person who who heard Jesus' teachings, who heard his claims, to wonder, Jesus, why don't you harness this power and save yourself? We can't assume that every passerby that day didn't initially hear Jesus' claims with, with literalism and hope. I mean, perhaps they're rejecting Jesus' claims in light of what looks like new evidence, right? This, this, he's, there's an imminent death. They might, in fact, be disappointed, um, now assuming Jesus to be another charlatan another false messiah. They hold him to eat his words. I mean, many zealots came before Jesus, many false messiahs. Barabbas was imprisoned, we're told, because he killed someone during an insurrection. In the book of Acts, a Pharisee named Gamaliel mentioned two such men. He mentioned Thudis, that's how you say it, um, and Judas the Galilean. The, the The words of the first group, this passerby, they're a shorthand of a public rejection of Jesus's claims of authority, power, divinity, innocence, even. And if Jesus was a liar and a charlatan, this is not an altogether bad thing to do. I mean, consider the practice of material shaming, which has been part of the public life at various the it's been part of public life in human history at various points in America's not too recent history. And let's not forget that all American history is not too recent history public punishment in the stocks, especially among Puritans, was was really common. It was a common practice up until the 1750s. I mean, recent instances of public execution have documented how onlookers are emboldened in that moment to speak out and call out shame upon the guilty. I think of uh, Saddam Hussein's hanging. I draw this analogy not to say that material shaming is correct, but instead to focus on the way that religious leaders are very different than the first group of passerbys mentioned. The, the religious leaders, unlike this first group, made insidiously different statements that were in line with actual mockery. I mean, we can't presume innocence on the, the part of the religious leaders. I mean, let me reread that. So 31, in the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel come down now from the cross that we might see and believe. I mean, can, can you read in that a qualitative difference? I mean, it is marked by a phrase that isn't present for the passerbys. They were mocking among themselves, but don't be fooled. They had no mind to see and believe. I mean, in knowing that Jesus saved others, they had already seen a great deal. And they've already rejected it, saying that it's the power of Beelzebub. I mean, that literally happened earlier in the Bible. Why should this be any different? Why even if Jesus called down power from heaven and came off the cross, why, why would their conclusion in this moment be any different? I mean, let me suggest that the one key difference between the first group and the second is a, is a matter of the state of heart. I mean, the first group of people You can imagine the passerby are saying, you claim to be somebody. You elevated yourself to a hero, a king, even God, a messiah. But look at you, you're a liar, you're nobody. And now we're putting you in your place as a criminal. Shameful, a deplorable charlatan, dangerous to be stopped. We don't need you, and so we make an example of you. Consider the difference between that, which is a matter of justice, and the second group where it's a matter of control where the chief priests and the teachers of the law are acting out of self-interest and envy, right? That's what we read. And, and I wonder if there's a little part of them in their, in their censurious spirit that in those mocking words had fear, that they might themselves uh, be, be struck down. I, I, wonder, I wonder what was going on in their hearts and minds in that moment. So I think that's enough reflection on that second group. So the first group we talked about were the Romans. Then the religious leaders. The third group, I'll bring to us, is the criminals. I mean, as Mark portrays it, even in the with the criminals dying besides Jesus, they used their last breath to put Jesus in his place. I mean, that's how the passage ends in verse 32. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Right? There are two of them. It's the plural verb. This text is saying both of them did it. We have a little more information from Luke that, that one of them came to his senses and, and actually repented later, but that's not, the, that's not the the point of that's being drawn out in this passage. I mean, the irony here is that it appears that Jesus has all the attention of the crowd, the soldiers, the religious leaders, even the criminals. These criminals did not share in the shaming that usually happens at these public executions, the jeering, the mocking. They are protecting themselves by t- participating in it. If you can't beat them, join them, maybe they say. Perhaps this is because Jesus was no ordinary criminal. Perhaps they they have always wanted to be stand-up comedians and get people's attentions, and this is their first attempt at being gruff stand-up comedians. I mean, I think the the detail that this underlies in my mind is that everyone was ridiculing Jesus, right? People from positions of power, even to people that are in, in the worst of conditions, people that are the least powerful, um, I mean, in Jewish thinking, oftentimes truth is communicated like that. By showing two extremes, we're, we're, we're creating an exhaustive picture in our imaginations of everything. Um, I mean, I think it's underlying the agony that Jesus experienced in his utter aloneness, where just verses later he cries out and says, God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, this detail in particular, I think, underlines the darkness of the moment for Jesus. He was alone in this moment. I mean, this was his task, the work he was called to do, the burden that he was called to bear. And he was experiencing this in an agonizing way. Insults came from every side. So Rome was mocking for the game of it the Jews were emboldened, and maybe they mocked out of a censorious heart. The irony of the criminals is that they rubbed dirt in Jesus's wounds to justify themselves. Jesus was alone in this painful moment of social humiliation. So what can we say about the disciples, this fourth group? I mean, what can we say about the disciples? I mean, where even are the disciples? The text does tell us later on that there are several women watching from a distance, but the text also tells us there wasn't, that it wasn't a follower of Jesus that, that helps him in his weakness. It was a man from northern Africa named Simon who was literally forced— it's a very strong verb in Greek— he was literally forced to carry the cross of Jesus, likely so Jesus would retain enough strength to die a good long death on the cross. I mean, the last mention we have of a disciple— is Peter in the temple courtyard, warming himself by the fire, denying that he even knew Jesus. Denying this to probably somebody who <laughs> could do very little about it, um, a servant girl. I mean, Peter, in his breaths before that, pledged himself to Jesus. Um, they all did. All the disciples pledged themselves to Jesus at the end of chapter 14, and each of them fell away. Um, Now, we could talk about how the silence and absence of the disciples played a role in Jesus's social humiliation. I mean, they were his community after all. They abandoned him in his hour of need. Maybe his disciples condemned Jesus in in their absence. Maybe they did make a decision to shame Jesus by disassociating themselves like Judas did. There's nothing in the text to suggest one way or the other um, what was going on for the disciples in that moment. But I wonder if they did maybe it was just coming from a place of weakness rather than strength. It was not, it wasn't a decision made slowly, carefully, together as a long process of spiritual discernment. You know, as I've been thinking about it, I've been thinking about it a little differently this week, um, about the meaning of the absence of the disciples. I believe that to a degree, the disciples shared in Jesus's shame and humiliation, at least temporarily. Um, in a matter of days, they transformed from a people celebrating in a small but, but tr- uh, powerful, potent way, this triumphal entry of the king returning to Jerusalem, and they, they transformed into a, a people whose dreamed for future was quickly closing in around them. I mean, they were driven into hiding because they feared what associating with Jesus at a time like this would mean for them. I mean, in the garden, we, we also should remember that Peter was literally ready to fight an, a, a Roman army. Um, it was only after seeing Jesus brought before the court that he fell away. This, this falling away, this hiding, this, this, in some ways, this pain that they shared um, was their part in Jesus' humiliation, whether they had the desire for it or not. Um, I mean, Jesus predicted this. He said, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I mean, there's a dependence there, sheep and a shepherd. Um, and the disciples in that scenario are affected by the the shepherd being struck. You know what what is mocking? I, I've been thinking a little bit about that. I mean, sometimes shaming and mocking is a way of kind of finding our place in the pecking order of society, asserting our place in a social hierarchy. Sometimes it's about creating pressure so that people change. Sometimes, and I'm being generous here, it's a way of processing difference. Um, other times it's part of a ritual of cutting somebody off. I, I don't see the disciples' absence and silence coming from any of these places, if I'm honest. I mean, it's all ambiguous, but it's at least coming from a place of fear. Now give us a word, preacher. What, where do we go from here? Get us out of this dark cavern that you have led us into. I mean, Jesus' work on the cross changes the position of the disciples and the shame that they share in because of the power of the resurrection. I'm going to say that again. Jesus' work on the cross changes the position of the disciples and the shame that they share because of the power of the resurrection. I mean, some of what animates Christian thinking about self-sacrifice when it comes to social status, about um, associating with Christ even when it's costly— is the fact that God brings life to that which dies. I mean, this is something that the disciples grow into in the book of Acts and beyond, which, which sets such a strong example for, for us um, in the church, in the workplace, in school, with our friends. I mean, saying you're a Christian is costly sometimes. Um, other times it's an advantage, but behaving like a Christian, it's always costly. Um, it, may be costly, but it positions us in a way to receive blessings from God and honor from God and honor from his people. I mean, there's a lot of talk in the news today about the culture of shame um, and the way that it swings like a pendulum, right? For centuries, the West moved away from practices like material shaming in favor of a more juridical process. I mean, going to court rather than tarring and feathering. Um, However, it's becoming more and more common to see social groups exercise a a cancelling sort of shame from the margins rather than in courtrooms. We've also seen the church move from formal structures of shaming, uh, akin to the scarlet letter, say, um, instead opting for concrete processes of restorative church discipline or excommunication. Um, I mean, this is a movement from, from... a shame culture to a guilt culture is it coming back to a gu- you you hear conversations like that um i mean one of the things that i think that in these conversations we're becoming more sensitive to and that's the the fact that we have a lot to learn <laughs> about shame and the ways that in our weakness we can internalize it um and it can become a destructive factor and force in, in many people's lives impacting mental health the quality of relationships our self-image Um, Shame is an an imperfect tool exercised by fallen people over other fallen people. Um, Which doesn't mean we should abandon it. Instead, celebrating shamelessness and being unashamed. Um, As a church, I believe that we have strength um, that comes from the other side of the honor-shame continuum. And that is the power of helping restore the face of the other. I mean, if we believe that Jesus has literally carried our shame in passages like this where we see him being mar- uh, mocked and jeered at and ridiculed, and we believe that that changes our status in God's economy of grace, I mean, then we have the power to restore the face and the other from a place of strength acting in Christ's name. And we can make people important in our community even if they don't have a lot of money, even if they lack social standing, and some other arbitrary things that people associate honor with in our, in our wider culture. I mean, it's no longer the case that we have to skulk around in the shadows for fear of sharing our fate with Christ because our eternal security, because of the resurrection, has given us this gift of eternal honor, right? Sharing the name of Christ. What if we as a community le- 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 leaned into that strength of, of the opposite side of that honor shame continuum? I mean, dancing upon evil, bringing people into an honor-asserting community. Um, as a Christ-centered community, this is the, the the bedrock of our philosophy of honor, that Christ is to be worshiped. We don't worship each other. We don't worship the created world. Christ is the object of all glory and honor, and we repent when our worship changes focus. And we can so easily make ourselves the object of honor and focus our attention on, on elevating our name, but Jesus' name is the name above every other name. As a Christ-centered community, Christ becomes the center of our identity. Our identity isn't built on things like money or fame or popularity or even our mental and physical health. We're honored because Christ is honored. And I think practically that means we can celebrate the face of Christ in each other whenever anyone is mocked for Christ's sake. I mean, this is how Paul puts it. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I, as i close i pray that that we could take hold of that honor that we're invited to share in christ um right for for even though we die right in in social ways um in other ways we're, we're raised to life in christ my prayer is that i when In identifying with the disciples, we would see that Christ's followers were not merely on the side of the mockers, the jeerers, though we may find ourselves on that side, but we are on the side where we're called to have faith in God's resurrection power when we share in Christ's suffering, which sometimes we will. He suffered real pain in a time of real darkness, which perhaps you can relate to, but in his rising, he changes the social matrix and, and our perspective on what is worthy of honor. Giving your life, yes. Serving others, yes. Caring for the creation, yes. Treasuring those in your family, yes. Having an outward focus, yes. All of these honor asserting acts are very selfless at their heart of it. They're actually subverting this system that says you have to seize and steal honor. It subverts the idea that there's this social pecking order that you have to assert yourself in to be okay in the world. I mean, in giving yourself away for the sake of Christ, in raising up other people into places of honor, I mean, the center of, of, of our community is Christ, Christ being honored. I mean, he was mocked. If we associate with Christ, we may be mocked too. But the resurrection is a game changer in that it flips every assumption that we make about honor on its head. I mean, we're probably going to get mocked no matter what, <laughs> whether we associate with Christ or not. Um, but my prayer and challenge is that w- we operate as a body from a place of strength, knowing that, that God's power defeated the grave, right? And it, it has that power to, continue to continually defeat the grave. That is resurrection power that subverts honor, which means you don't have to seize it and control it. It means that it's given by God to you, which you can in that, then in turn, I mean, really mirror to others as we help bring out the face of Christ in them. Um, and we get to share in that. Um, I think I'll leave it there. Let's pray. Um, Father, I thank you that you were mocked um, so that in an eternal sense, we, we wouldn't have to be. Our honor is secure in you. Um, I thank you that you bore suffering and shame. Um, and I thank you that you have resurrection power that, that brought you um, back to life from the dead. and that, is life that we are called to enter into through union with you. Um, I pray that as a church, we would not seize honor, that we would not be afraid of getting mocked, or getting jeered at, or poked fun at, um, and especially not for the, for the sake of associating with you. Um, because I, I pray that you would create our, uh, such a, f- a firm foundation in our identities and the way we relate to one another, that, that actually we, we become an honor asserting community that, that really brings out the beauty of one another um, as we reflect you. Um, so change the way that we, change, the, change our security um, and change the way we live and help us to have confidence in you, we pray. In Jesus name, amen.